Turn to three. Positive rotation. Welcome to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast at the Illinois Air National Guard at Scott Air Force Base. Ignition. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Brian Ellison, the Roll Call podcast focused on people, mission, and community. Our guest this week is Doc Avery from the 126th Medical Group. He tells us how an orientation flight convinced him to sign up for uh, the Guard, and uh, he also tells us uh, that, well, you'll find out what a real flight surgeon does, not what I thought it was. And coming up in this week's look around the Air Force, Thor is here. He's here to protect us. And new accommodations uh, portal is uh, coming online. That's coming up on this week uh, in around the Air Force. Kids on Guard is coming up this summer. It is uh, less than a month away now. June 28th, kids of the 126th will be able to experience an age-friendly adaptation of the military, and registration is on now. I'll have a link in the description. Once you have registered, you'll uh, receive a confirmation email. You can register uh, for Kids on Guard. That The registration is closing on June 6th. The 126th Military and Family Readiness is still looking for volunteers. You can email them at 126arw.afr.mailbox at us.af.mil. There is a summer running clinic that's coming up uh, June 5th. Registration is going on now. It runs 5 June through 27 July. It meets, we, meets Monday, Wednesday, Thursday at 1530 3.30 for, uh, for some of you. Open to all active duty Air National Guard and reservists of all military branches. This is a hands-on eight-week clinic. It's designed to help improve your one-and-a-half-mile run. Average improvement is a minute 30 off your aerobic component of fitness. You can email heatherlbrondmeyer.civ at health.mil. I'll, I'll just add that to our uh, to to the description of this. A team from the Air Force Research Laboratory put the Thor system through its paces, taking down multiple drones in a simulated swarm attack during a recent demonstration at Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico. The tactical high-power operational responder, or THOR, was designed to use non-kinetic, high-power microwave pulses to drop targets out of the sky. Captain Eric Plummer, a test engineer who aimed THOR at the drone swarm, says the system was exceptionally effective at disabling the drones. As drone swarm threats evolve, advanced technologies like directed energy are being explored to help protect military personnel around the world. Airmen and Guardians have an opportunity to help inspire, engage, and recruit the future force by participating firsthand in events called We Are All Recruiters, or WARE. At WARE events, potential applicants or influencers have direct interaction with Air and Space Force personnel who educate and increase public awareness that could provide leads for recruiters. Brigadier General Lisa Craig, Air Force Recruiting Service Deputy Commander, says all Airmen and Guardians, regardless of their specialty, should think of themselves as recruiters. Members can get up to 14 days of permissive TDY each year to participate in WARE events. The Department of the Air Force has unveiled a portal to streamline accommodation requests and appeals. The portal serves as a one-stop shop for Airmen, Guardians, and civilians who need to request reasonable and religious accommodations or apply for an appeal. 
The automated system will manage the flow of requests between applicants and the respective processing organizations and notify members at each step of the process, including appeals and final decisions. The need for a single portal came to the forefront as the department's COVID-19 task force realized that accommodation processes were fragmented and difficult for requesters and approvers to navigate. That's your look around the Air Force. I'm Technical Sergeant Eric Mann. Joining me today, Lieutenant Colonel Jim, might know him as Doc Avery, the 126th Medical Group Flight Surgeon. So I got to ask a stupid question, sir. Does a flight surgeon mean you can do surgery in flight? No. Oh, man. Okay. I thought, man, you guys would be really talented if you could do that. So what is your role as a flight surgeon in the wing? So the the term flight surgeon is over 100 years old, and this is what we were originally called soon after uh, the Wright brothers started flying planes, uh, people started crashing planes. Um, and it turns out that a large number of those accidents and mishaps were due to human factors. And so the military quickly identified that they needed pre-flight medical clearance for people before they can fly. And so this is where uh, the role of this career field, flight flight surgeons, came from. Today, it's sort of uh, an antique term and doesn't have much meaning because neither can I fly an airplane and nor can I perform surgery. So it's like, why do we call it that? Really, what we're called aerospace medicine. Ah. And so if if you want to really boil it down, we, we train in aerospace medicine and the reason we need this is to ensure safe safety in flight. So you say you train in aerospace uh, uh, medicine. What what does that entail? What is aerospace? Uh, how is that different than uh, than maybe what a regular uh, doctor does? Right. So you know, most of the the um, of our guard flight docs have civilian practices where they may be a family practice or internal medicine or really any specialty and they may work with us as in a general medical capacity but what we can do is um, apply for training in aerospace medicine which is a a multi-week training at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So yeah, what I mean, what what are they training you guys? Are they training on what are they training you guys on? Evidently, it's not to fly, <laughs> right? Well, it, we actually do spend several weeks flying an air, airplane. We report to a civil a civilian um, airport and get instructed by Air Force pilots on how to fly aircraft. And so we actually get to fly the Cirrus twenty two for several weeks. Um, wow. Yeah. So do you have a pilot? You ever gotten a pilot's license? No, and but I have no interest in that. <laughs> it's too much. It's just too much to maintain that certification. Oh, really? Yeah. But we get uh, 30 or 40 hours of flying time. What kind of things are they looking at uh, for you? What, are they, or what, they, what do they want you to take away from, from least kind of that underlining, uh, underlying knowledge of, or base level knowledge of flying? So w- even though we're not trained to be pilots, we need to understand what it takes to be a pilot. And in the same way, you know what it takes to drive a car. Um, For instance, if I came to you and you were my doc and I said, hey, um, I hurt my foot, is it okay for me to drive my car? 
um, you might say, well, Jim, it's your left foot that's broken. I've got one question. Do you have a stick shift or an automatic? And I would say, well, it's a stick shift. And you'd say, well, it's your left foot. You can't shift, so you can't drive a car. So as, as a doc, you have to understand what that occupation is and what the, how a car works. You may not even know how to drive a stick shift, but you know you need your left foot for it. And then you make that determination that you can or can't drive the car. So the same thing with an KC-135. We have to understand what it takes to, for a pilot to get in and out and operate that aircraft and then understand what with the condition they may have uh, if that's going to allow them to fly. So like for instance, compared to let's say an F-22 pilot, if a, if a KC-135 pilot hurts their neck, well, if from the front seat, you may not have to swivel your neck 180 degrees. So you might be able to fly the KC-135 with a minor problem with your neck, but an F-22 pilot needs to turn their head 180 degrees, they're not gonna be able to fly the plane. So we have to understand what it takes. And so it's an extra layer of, uh, of uh, criteria that we use. How does your work here in the wing differ from, uh, are you in, you in private practice? I saw you have a Wash U uh, email. I didn't know if you taught there or you are, are on the staff there as, as a doctor. So I, I have a couple jobs. I, one is at Washington University in St. Louis where I work now as a specialist in bone and mineral diseases. So I look at conditions that affect people's bone mineral content. Okay. Osteoporosis is the most common one, but there's a host of other things that we, we just do that in my clinic. I'm sitting up straighter now that yeah, you said that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I also work here uh, part-time on a Title V capacity as a flight, as a flight doc. So I'm, work as, I'm employed as a civilian doing the same thing I do uh, in my guard capacity. So at, in your guard capacity, you guys have an interesting role. What, what's the difference between uh, what you do during uh, a drill weekend or maybe in your Title V position and what you do during a, uh, a DFT, a deployment for training? Good. So as you know, we're, when we're in drill status, we're under Title 32. Uh, we're actually not allowed to treat prescribed medicine or diagnose conditions in, in people. Okay. Uh, we're allowed to, you know, examine a person, um, certify them for, for flying. We're allowed to look over and look at records and make sure that if, if someone has a condition, it meets the standards of retention. Uh, but we're not allowed to treat, so we can't prescribe any medicines. We don't, we, you don't come to see us if you're sick and get an antibiotic pack. But when we go on DFT, that's when we get assigned to a hospital, an MTF or uh, and we can actually treat treat patients. So this is important training for us to be able to navigate and work in a in in a, in a military treatment facility. So is that what you guys um, when you guys are going to Hawaii soon? Is that what you're going to be doing then? Correct. So I'll be assigned me and the other the other docs going in a, a primary care clinic, uh, and we'll be probably seeing either active duty service members, uh, dependents, or retirees. Uh, and we've done that before in other DFTs. And so this fills a, 
a need and we can take care of a lot of backlog patients that a lot of the MTFs haven't been able to get to. So we can also give relief to those docs that are there working full time and allow them some respite as well. What do you like about going on these, uh, I, and it's probably the same thing, uh, but what do you like about uh, going on these DFTs? So this really gives us a chance as a, as a medical group to really form some cohesive bonds. Uh, this is a chance for us to, as opposed to pulling us in all the different directions of meetings during the weekend, where we really just get to, we live and work together, just like a active duty group would. Um, so we really form some really good professional bonds and we also get to do what we were supposed to be doing, what we signed up for. Um, right. Because, you know, what happens is then we get called to deploy and, and we're expected to be able to jump right in and work. Uh, deployment is, is the first thing they'll tell you is you didn't come here for training. You came here to get to work. Right. And that's what we're, we're expected to do. And we need this these resources in their DFTs to be able to get that training to, to get to work if we deploy. When you're on a DFT, how does that uh, differ from maybe what you do or what a doctor may do in uh, private practice or what's the difference maybe? Oh, good. So there's some, there's definitely some overlap, you know, I mean, sick people are sick people, whether sure. you're wearing a uniform or not. Um, but it's the, the big part would be that occupational health component, which is, can this person do their job? Do we need to restrict this person from their job? Because after all, we're in a profession that we deal with some pretty, some pointy things and some dangerous things. Right. We need to, we need to take that into consideration. And then not just that, but then to say, okay, you can, you, you, let's say, let's say it's uh, arming whether arming use of force. Right. And we'll make a decision, this person has to be disarmed. And then, as opposed to like in the civilian world, you'll say, take this medicine, and if you get better, we don't need to hear back from you. Right. Well, when it comes to a lot of these disarming or flying, we need to see them back even when they're better so that we can make a decision to return them, whether that be to flying status or, or arming use of force. What, what inspired you to become a uh, flight surgeon or, or, or to join the, the National Guard? That's a, I've got, I've got short answers. And oh, I'll I've take, got, I'll take got long answers. I love long answers. So I mean, which, which, they, they, long answers are the more entertaining ones. Okay. So some people just want the short answer. Oh, no, no. And that's real easy. Patriotism. Sure. Oh, okay. Okay. But the long answer is, uh, goes back. Uh, quite a few years, and a former um, navigator, Lieutenant Colonel Hodge, okay. was a civilian pharmaceutical rep who came by my office one day, and I was uh, honestly kind of beaten down and exhausted, and he came back, and he, he said, hey, I left you some samples of these medicines. Uh, why don't you prescribe it for your patients? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> whatever. And he said, hey, you know... Um, I'm a navigator on a KC-135, and we're having an incentive flight for doctors who might be interested. And I said, look, first, I'm old. <laughs> Second, I'm not joining the military. I'm not going to, I'm not interested. But third, yeah, I think that sounds really cool, and, <laughs> and I'd like to go fly on an airplane if, that, if you're really offering it. So 
This then fast forward after filling out a bunch of paperwork and giving a lot of information, I showed up over here on a cold day um, in 2009. And we go through a pre-flight pre brief. We met with then Colonel Nizamas, our wing commander. We met with um, Colonel uh, Jonathan Baining, who was the med group commander. Sure. I met uh, Colonel Campardo, my current med group uh, commander. We, and, and I think there were about 20 docs. And we got all ready to go in pre-flight, and we get out to the airfield, and someone drove up or made a radio call and said, sorry, the flight's canceled. Oh. Yeah. And everyone, you know, darn it, what a waste of time. Right. And we're like, well, why is the flight canceled? Well, they closed the airport because we were receiving the remains uh, from people killed in action. Oh, wow. So suddenly we're all, you know, disappointed that it's, our day is spoiled. You know, but these other people's day was really spoiled. Sure. And so I kind of did some soul searching on the drive home. And, and it was interesting um, that everyone apologized. And, and at that point, I thought, you don't need to apologize for that at all. Um, we got invited back and we f took a flight and we got off the flight and I basically went up to Colonel Baining and said, all right, I'll do it. Really? And but Colonel Baining said, you'll do what? He didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> he said, wait, you, a recruiter hasn't talked to you yet. Like, I don't want to talk to the recruiter. I mean, I will, right. but I don't need any convincing. This is what I want to do. And so that's how it sort of happened. Uh, and pretty much like the next few weeks, I came out in this building at Building 5000 and raised my right hand. You're kidding. So what, um, how old were you? 46. Wow. What, was there any other doctors that joined with you or were you the only so, one? So this is sort of very curious. Uh, when the uh, tr Colonel Hodge came to meet with us, I was working with Dr. Mark Gregory. Okay. And he came over too. <laughs> now it took him a couple more weeks and he, then he came over to building 5,000 and raised his hand. And the important part of that is I outrank him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you were in private practice then. And, and, and so he, he, here's what people have told me. And I, I maybe, uh, why would a doctor take time out of his practice who makes good money to to serve uh one weekend out of the month and two weeks out of the year well it that's that's one of those questions like what do you say when someone says thank you for your service right you know and my answer to that is because because these people are worth it right um you know there's different ways you can give back um you know, you can, like you said, talking about money, yeah, you can chase that your whole career. But have you, have you, you know, you, at some point in a person's life, you start to ask yourself, am I going to leave this place any better? Uh, am I doing something that other people need? Right. Uh, am I part of something bigger than myself? So these were, these were questions that I went home and started to think about that led to me making that decision. And I think most of us do that. Sure. You know, all of us are, you know, it's one weekend a month, right? Right. And you're like, well, that's no big deal. Well, you only got four weekends a month. So you're giving up 25% of them right there. 
And so that's a, that's a big ask for everybody here to be uh, a DSG in the National Guard. Right. And so the people that are here a lot of times are in different stages of life. A lot of people are trying to do it to earn extra money or get educational funds, uh, may not have regular physician care on the outside. We're asking a lot. I feel like there's not a more deserving group of people who I would like to help take care of. Does it frustrate you that you can't treat on the weekends? Oh, you know, we've got enough to do. Right. It, listen, I don't need any, I've, I've spent a whole, you, you, I already give you an idea how old I am. I've spent more than a couple decades treating people with medicine. I don't need any more practice with that. <laughs> it's enough to understand the medical standards, right? Uh, you know, waiver guides, reviewing records. I, we don't need any more work to have to do, deal with treatment. We'll do that when we deploy and when we go on DFT, right. in which we do. Right. What was your family's reaction to you becoming a, a, a flight surgeon? They were flabbergasted. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it, it, it was out of the blue. Um, so I had have a spouse and kids. Um, we made it work. That's you know, cool. We made it work. Has anybody in your family, had, had anybody in your family served? So my, my dad was in the Air Force uh, at the time, uh, just after the Korean conflict. Okay. And so he was a radar man. Oh, wow. And was stationed in Japan. Oh, that's, that's cool. But I didn't have much. He'd been out of the military for years before I was even born. So as a doctor, what's your, uh, what's your training like uh, when you first come into the, uh, to, to, the, to the Guard or to the Air Force? Well, curiously, there's really not much except understanding um, this overlay of what we have as our medical standards. We have this a, a whole different electronic health record. Uh, which is changing again this month. Oh, really? A big giant change. Right? Is that the Genesis or something? That's like? correct. Genesis is, we're one of the last to go to Genesis. Most of the rest of our military has already made a transition. I believe June 18th is our last day. Okay. Uh, we've all been through training. Okay. Uh, but it's CBT training, not hands-on. And uh, you know how. Oh, yeah. CBT That's... is what you, you have to do it. We all do it. Right. Um, but when the, when the, when the lights really go on with this, I think we're going to, there's going to be a little bit of a wake up moment. Is what, what is, what's different about Gen? I know we just got off the, we got off track, but what's different about Genesis? Uh, what's, what's, is there something better about it? I'm sure there is. It's a new system. Sure. So the, the previous system, Alta, which has been around forever is sort of like, uh, windows 98. <laughs> right. That's, uh, it's, that's, we're talking like the difference between a flip phone and an iPhone 14. Wow. Oh, that's great. So a lot, a lot more functionality. Okay. Uh, a lot more ability, I hope, to communicate among different providers as well as patients. Oh, okay. So for instance, it may have its own embedded communication system to securely, uh, for instance, give people the results or follow up or have questions um, it'll also have a better, uh, hopefully once we learn how to use it, a better 
more meaningful, streamlined way to enter information about us. Oh, that's great. Is, is there, I thought I read somewhere where they're going to be able to communicate with maybe civilian doctors so the, in a more secure way or something along those lines or be able to see, I don't know. That would be great. I, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, <laughs> you know, you have the, the parent company of this, of Genesis, is Cerner. Okay. And they make a civilian form of, oh. of, of this as well. So Cerner systems will likely be able to communicate with other Cerner systems. Okay. Uh, the other major health record system in our country is Epic. Okay. Um, and they're still working on, on pipelines for providers to communicate. For sure, we should be able to, for instance, communicate uh, across medical treatment facilities. Oh, that's good. So for instance, I, my hope is <laughs> if I'm your doc and we're in the deed, right? and I need to send you back home, and you gotta go to Landstuhl first, and then you gotta go to Walter Reed, and then you come here, that we are gonna be able to create a better way as opposed to trying to pick up a DSN line <laughs> and also then record everything for, future, for posterity. Of what we're, what's going on? Oh, that's yeah. So maybe the records will be able to follow you better. They, better. We can follow. They follow us now, but sometimes it's pretty clunky. Right. So, so like, if you're leaving the deed, if you've had some health problems, even though it's Alta, you still need to go to the medical records and get a disc and hand carry that home. Oh yeah, yeah. That yeah. Hopefully, this Genesis does that. You, yeah. So we're talking about uh, we were talking about the medical training that you got uh, earlier, the, the the just the training coming in as a doctor. What was that again? What was that uh, like for you? What was that experience? Right. So, uh, well, the medical training again. We came. I came as a most of all of us came as pre-trained assets. Right. So we didn't have to go to school per se to do anything right. to get started working here. But military uh, training. So we had to go through. Um, OTS. Okay. Um, and that was, fan I thought it was fantastic training. Um, good. I had a, I had a great time. Um, <laughs> luckily, well, not everybody has a good time because maybe they're not in the best of physical oh, condi sure. condition. Mm -hmm. And so if you go there and you're not in decent physical shape, a lot of the docs and other health professionals had some trouble running and doing the PT. Sure. Um, the The educational part of it was fantastic. When I went, um, I learned a lot about how to be an officer, how to military history. I loved every minute of it. So when you and then you come in and you ha you have to do some, I guess, some just some medical training as far as is that uh, specific to flight surgeon or oh, so so to be a flight surgeon. Then after you get through, after you get through OTS, mm -hmm. you can apply to be a flight surgeon and it so we're considered air crew so we have to go through a separate physical exam process oh wow uh pretty much the same criteria as what our boom operators do so we have to pass the same medical standards as air crew, all air crew so we have we have a and we have to maintain our health standards and as air crew so we have to get a what's called a 2992 yep uh, flying certificate, and then once we get that, that qualifies us when we're accepted to go to, to AMP or aer the Aerospace Medicine Program oh, okay, at Wright Pat, right. which was six weeks. Now it's eight. Um, 
and we go and stay and learn the learn that learn yeah the the, the flight and all that stuff that's um what is it, how often do the pilots have to go through uh through their uh their exams for to fly right so all air crew must have an annual flyer exam and that includes um you know, filling out the PHAQ okay, online right. like we all do. Right. Uh, do the mental health. Usually what the flight surgeon does the mental health portion themselves. So as opposed to the telephone thing, right. we do it in person. Uh, the air crew has to go get audiogram and they have to see the optometrist. And all that's got to be good. Uh, then they have to have vital signs. Okay. Sometimes lab. If you're old like me, you <laughs> may need an EKG. Oh, Yep, and it's got to be good. And then once, once, once all that's done, which takes honestly, you know, several hours. Sure. You go the 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 pilot or boom operator or flight surgeon for that matter comes to see their flight doc, and we go through a physical exam. Oh wow! And if things are good, if uh, waivers are up to date, uh, at the conclusion of that visit, we tell the. Uh, Harm SARM's office, they're good to go, and we issue a 2992. And they're good to fly for the next year? Good for the next year. So, the eyeballs, uh, do they have to have 2020 vision? Is, is that still the standard, or is that waivable? Well, there's waivers for everything. <laughs> so, I've heard. So, one of the things, it's, it's like a lot of stuff, just like maps, it's harder to get in than it is to stay in. Right. It's, it's, it's easier to stay in than it is to get in. Um, you have to be correctable to 2020. Oh, okay. To, so that's the main thing. I mean, there's lots of variations of that. Like, how much does it take to get corrected? So, and and it depends what you do too. So, for instance, like a boom operator, you'd want to have you you want they need to have pretty good depth perception, right? Because that's what they're doing. Sure. They're driving a tube into another jet, <laughs> thirty thousand feet. Right. They got to have depth perception. So if they can't pass the depth Unfortunately, we've had to let some excellent uh, people go because they can't, they don't have depth perception. And it's, and it's still, is it still that one test where they? It's the difficult test. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are some other ways we can. Right. We, some substitutes for that. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the difficult test that everyone hates. Yeah, that and the color, the color, the, color, yep. the blindness, I, I, I don't know. I think sometimes I think they're pulling a joke on me. I was like, there's no number in there. You're, pull, you're <laughs> right. pulling a fast one on me. Well, the trouble is a lot of airplane dials are either green or red. Sure. And so you need to know right. green or red. Yeah. I, I, I think I can see green or red. I mean, yeah. everything looks, the Cardinals look red to me. Yeah. Um, anything else would you want to add, sir? I, I appreciate you stopping by. No, it's, I'm good. All right. That's Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jim uh, Doc Avery. The 126th Medical Group uh, flight surgeon there. Thanks again, sir, for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate what you do. Thanks. What a touching story from uh, Doc Avery about uh, how he was uh, inspired to join the, uh, the 126th Air Refueling Wing as a doc. If you are having thoughts of suicide or know someone in crisis, please have them call the Military Crisis Line 988. That's... Uh, 988-PRESS-1 when you call that.
You can find all of our links on Linktree. That's linktr.ee forward slash 126ARW. If you're watching on YouTube, you can also download this on your favorite podcast app. If you want to pass along some information, you can email Roll Call at 126RollCall at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast focused on people, mission, and community. I'm Master Sergeant Brian Ellison. 500 stable.